Hello and welcome to another edition of A Matter of Public Health. It's the podcasting service of the Kent County Health Department located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm Steve Kelso. I'll be your host of this episode of A Matter of Public Health. And on this episode, we're talking about mosquitoes, ticks, and vector-borne illness. What you need to know and the things you can do to lessen your odds of getting bit and developing a potentially deadly disease. You probably know that sound. It is as much a part of the summer soundtrack as the laughter of children playing or the crack of a baseball bat, but without the joy. It is the absolutely maddening sound of a mosquito, and if you've ever tried to sleep in a room while there was one in there, you've probably marveled at the ability of one tiny creature to completely interfere with your life. But what if I told you that this one tiny creature is probably the deadliest animal on the planet? It's estimated that the mosquito is responsible for over one million deaths around the world every year. And while malaria, yellow fever, and dengue all remain fairly common across the globe, here in the United States, our primary concern is West Nile virus. Most people who get West Nile virus will never know it. Some will develop a serious illness that impacts the central nervous system. It can cause long-term paralysis and even death. Joining me now is Paul Bellamy. Paul is a public health epidemiologist here at the Kent County Health Department. He serves as our vector surveillance program manager, and simply put, Paul knows bugs. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell me, uh, I want to start with mosquitoes. They're the ones that, that we most seem to hear and certainly see around us during the summer months. People are saying to me uh, that they think there are more mosquitoes this year than there have been in the past. What, what would you say to that? This is a question that I get quite a bit. Um, just about every year in the beginning of the year, people start talking to me about this is the worst year for mosquitoes. This is the worst year for ticks. And it's something that is really interesting because with the increasing temperatures, as we see with uh, global climate change and with the decreased amount of snow we get, you know, the more milder winters, we are definitely seeing an increasing trend of uh, higher mosquito populations, higher tick populations, and um, we are definitely seeing more people outside for longer, and so we're getting a, a longer amount of time people are outside, we're getting a longer amount of time that mosquitoes have to be able to breed, you know, those increased temperatures really give them a chance to really just boom. Uh, so basically you're looking at a, at a combination of events then that where people have more exposure to mosquitoes. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, with the increased rainfall we're having earlier and with the milder winters, you know, we're getting more survivability in these mosquito populations. And we are certainly seeing a larger amount of mosquitoes as time goes on. And this is not only for this year or last year, but it's an ongoing trend we're seeing across the nation for an increased amount of mosquito activity and tick activity. The mosquito that spreads the West Nile virus, does he make his, he or she, they make their, their living, their home here in Michigan? Absolutely, yeah. We have a, a multiple species of mosquitoes here that can transmit the West Nile virus effectively. And uh, just as a quick tip, yeah, no, uh, female mosquitoes are the ones that are the ones transmitting the disease. Uh, the males don't need the blood meal, actually. So mosquitoes, uh, the female, are the ones that uh, take those blood meals and they use that to produce eggs. 
So it's the females specifically. So that's that's interesting. Talk to me about the typical life cycle of West Nile virus because we used to uh, we used to ask people to bring their dead birds in and we would look at dead birds. We don't do that anymore. Why did we? Why don't we? So a lot of programs around the U.S. started looking at birds specifically because they are a huge indicator of West Nile virus in the area. Not all birds are created equal when they're able to, as we call them, as amplifier hosts for the West Nile virus. To be a really good amplifier host, the bird needs to be able to get infected and to be able to survive long enough that a mosquito can pick that virus up from the bird. Now, that's not the case with humans, and it's not the case with horses or other animals that you um, find that do get West Nile virus. When humans or horses get it, we call them dead-end hosts, which means that we are not able to populate that virus enough for mosquitoes to get it again, which is why you'll generally see a lot of birds um, getting them because they're their primary feeding source for the Culex mosquitoes, as people call them, uh, some of these species that carry this. So they pri- they're primarily ornithophilic, which means they're mostly feeding on birds as their primary source of food. Or ornithophilic, that that ornithology, that's the study of birds. Help yes. us with that, right? That's, yes, okay. a- absolutely. And that's not the case for all mosquitoes, but these mosquitoes in particular do like to feed on birds, which gives them the perfect... Um, part of that life cycle for that virus to be able to transmit that back and forth to the mosquito population and the bird population where the birds go and the mosquitoes are, you're going to get that perfect combination to be able to have that virus circulating when the mosquito populations are high enough. Now, I introduced you as our vector surveillance program manager. And to me, when I say vector surveillance, that means you're actually out there counting bugs, actually looking for them. Tell, tell, Tell me what you do in that arena. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We have multiple programs going, and that just uh, means that we have a mosquito program and we have a tick program, and we're out there doing active surveillance. And that means that we have traps designed for specific types of mosquitoes that we place in areas around Kent County. We bring them back to our lab, we identify them, and then we send them off to the state, and they do specific testing for certain viruses. We're looking at Triple E, we're looking at West Nile virus, we're looking at Jamestown Canyon. And when those mosquito pools, as we call them, Um, gets tested, then we get notified back if any of them test positive, and then we're able to work with the municipalities in that area to have some targeted education and to be able to let people know in that area that we have found a particular virus, depending on what comes back. So those pools are gathered from a specific geographic area. You know where your traps are. Now I know where that inside that zip code or even address. And so that then gives you the information that you can go back to the municipality and say, you may want to consider spraying or whatever mitigation methods they may want to take. Absolutely. And something to note about those pools is a mosquito pool. And people might hear that a lot, but they might not know exactly what that means. So when a mosquito comes back positive, that pool comes back positive. A pool is for a single trap night from a single trap um, from that area that is of a given genus or species of that mosquito. So if we get 50 Culex pipians, um, one pool is going to be those Culex pipians from that trap night that we got from that area, that trap, and that's what's being tested. So one or multiple of those mosquitoes in that pool is what is being tested. Now, what information is that really giving you? Because you're not testing all of the mosquitoes in that area, but it does tell you that it's present in that area. But it, does it really tell you when it became present? I mean, it could have been in the area before or after, right? No, absolutely. And so when we're getting uh, these mosquito pools, we're not catching every single mosquito out there. 
but the general idea is that we know the virus is within these birds. It's endemic to the area, so that means we're getting West Nile cases every year. We know it's there. We know that it is there, but uh, you have to have a certain amount of an increased population of mosquitoes with enough of that virus being circulated before we really start seeing human cases. So it's really important for us to know when we're starting to pick those up because we know it's there, but when we start picking it up in our traps and we start doing that, that's the time that we're able to get in there early, get some intervention, tell people about it so that they know to be on their best behavior. They know when to start protecting themselves when they're out in that area. Now, this uh, this kind of surveillance has been going on for years, and that probably helps you establish a timeline, especially for West Nile. We almost see seasons now, don't we? We know what dates we can start expecting certain events. Absolutely. Uh, Particularly when you have very, very wet springs leading into summers, Uh, you have a lot of rainfall and then you have not a lot of rainfall. These like per se drought times when the heat goes up and it's after you have a good amount of rainfall coming down, that provides some really good opportunity for these mosquitoes to come up and to boom. And now generally we start seeing cases, both human and horses, uh, for all these different types of mosquito viruses, usually later on in the summer leading into the fall is the primary time that we start to see these. And this is after the mosquito populations get a large amount of time to build up to be able to have that virus within circulation. You know, somewhere I'm imagining somebody listening to this podcast and going, what about Zika? I heard all this stuff about Zika a couple of years ago, and now I don't hear anything about Zika. What, where is, what is Zika? Where is it? Well, Zika's certainly not gone. It's, it's within the areas that have more of species like Aedes albopictus and Aedes aegypti, um, which are two mosquitoes that we don't have here in Michigan. Aedes albopictus pops up every so often, but it's not really established here. It's more in the southeastern areas. We see those specific mosquitoes that are more, um, more likely to be transmitting that virus. Is it possible with climate change you'll start seeing more of the 80s albopictus? Absolutely. Uh, with the increasing uh, temperatures and, like I said, the more mild winters, it's very possible to have species and different types of vectors that are coming up here into the area that have never been in Michigan before just because their range is expanding as they're able to survive those more mild winters and the heat gives them more of a chance to populate quicker and allow them to establish themselves. What do I do to protect myself, protect my family? What can I do to, I guess I want to avoid the bite, but they bite day and night, man. 100%. Uh, Mosquitoes are a big problem, both for nuisance and the diseases that we've been talking about. It's really important that uh, when people are outside that they take this seriously. You know, there's a way to enjoy the outdoors while making sure that you're staying protected. And a lot of this... A lot of this has to do with making sure you're wearing long sleeves, making sure you're wearing an EPA-approved insecticide, and making sure that you're reapplying it as it says to. You know, a lot of times some of these um, some of these insecticides will tell you to make sure you're reapplying, but people tend not to do that. They put it on once, and they're outside for an eight-hour day, and it sweats off, or you're in and out of the pool, or you're in and out of stuff like that. You need to make sure it's staying on, it's staying protected, and that you are making sure you're aware of what's around you. And especially when applying to children, we want to make sure that we follow those manufacturer's directions on that on that package. Absolutely, because uh, particularly with younger children, they have that hand-to-mouth, um, you know, kind of action. And so you really want to make sure when you're applying it for younger children, you're avoiding the hand, you're avoiding the face, because you don't want them to ingest this on accident. So make sure you're definitely following those instructions on the canister. And we want to use a product with DEET. Is there a certain percentage? And is there a percentage where you're like, I don't need any more than that? 
Generally, the highest I recommend is like 20, 25%. I believe the standard recommendation is about 10% or over, but uh, generally for ticks and mosquitoes, both that 20, 25% range is usually a really good mix for both of those. Okay, you just brought up another one of our favorite summer creatures, the tick. Uh, he's he's just beyond creepy, right? When you find one on you, there's this like this, it's mortifying. A lot of these preventative measures that you're talking about can help me prevent vector-borne illnesses from tick and mosquito. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, making sure you're wearing long pants and long sleeves and making sure you know you're wearing lighter-colored clothing will protect you from mosquitoes as well as help notify you if you get a tick. They're easier to see when you're wearing light-colored clothing compared to their smaller, darker bodies. There is one tick that we are particularly worried about in Michigan. Absolutely. Exodus scapularis, the black-legged tick, uh, is the primary uh, vector of Lyme disease, where Borrelia burgdorferi is one of the, the types of Lyme, or what, what pathogens in create Lyme. What's the genus and species again? Exodus scapularis. Everybody, you're going to want to learn that, that term. Take that away from this podcast. That'll be a fun one to amuse your friends with. Talk to me about Lyme disease. What the tick can cause a very serious, long-term, long-lasting illness. Absolutely. And Lyme disease is uh, more and more studies are coming out about it. And it's something that we really want to make the population aware of because not just any tick can transmit Lyme disease. But one of the most important things about Lyme disease is that although the tick is incredibly small, which is an incredibly important point, is that the nymph and the adult stages are able to both transmit Lyme disease. And these ticks are really, really small. Think like a poppy seed on a on a muffin. Really, really small. I've seen photographs like you can put a hundred of them on a dime, no problem. Yeah, they are they are incredibly small, and it's important to make sure when you're getting home from being outdoors recreationally or otherwise to make sure you're checking yourself, your pets, your loved ones, you know, your kids, to make sure you're checking for these ticks that are that small. Sometimes a hand magnifying glass might be really useful. Checking behind the ears, around hairlines, anywhere your clothes cinch because that's kind of where they like to be. But if you come home and you're doing that regimentally. Um, you're having a good regiment about doing that, uh, you will be able to hopefully find them and remove them because when you remove them, it takes about 24 hours or more before we start really worrying about Lyme disease transferring from that tick to a person. And removal can be a tricky process. Talk to me about that. Yes. So I really like to bring this up every time someone asks me about tick removal because I've heard everything. I've heard matches. I've heard gasoline I've heard Vaseline. I've heard everything. And those My things. My Uncle Bill said he could hold his cigar to it and he'd get away with that. We didn't let him do that more than once. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that as well. People will do crazy things to remove this horrible thing off their body. And the thing is, is those, uh, that advice can not only be not helpful, but can actually be harmful because these ticks, when you do that and you irritate them and you're causing them a lot of distress while they're still attached to your body, they can produce more saliva and they can actually have a higher chance of transmitting pathogens to you because of that. So you freak them out and they're going to spit in you more, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. And so the tried and true method, you know, you take some tweezers, you get really close to the skin, you grab them and you pull straight up and get them out that way. And that's, that's a tried and true method. It's uh, very simple, but it's just as simple as it seems, and that's the best way to do it. And then what do I watch out for after this thing's off my body 24, 36, 48 hours later? 
Yeah, so uh, some symptoms can be delayed. So we generally tell people, you know, watch yourself for a few weeks and make sure you're not developing any symptoms. But some of these symptoms can just be cold and flu-like symptoms. You know, you're feeling bad. You've got aches. You've got pains. You've got a rash, which is one of the big things as well, is a rash that's emanating away from the bite or is occurring somewhere else other than when the bite happened because everyone reacts differently, right? So just at the bite center can just be someone's kind of dermatological reaction to the bite. And we've heard that referred to as the bullseye rash because it does form a ring and then a ring out beyond that. And so maybe when you develop that ring, that's a good time to talk to your personal care physician or your personal care provider. Absolutely. That's when we recommend people go see their providers. When you start noticing symptoms or you start feeling bad, definitely go to your provider. Definitely mention that you had been bitten by a tick. But otherwise, the physician itse- uh, themselves do not generally need the tick information to, you know, as part of their prognosis, as part of their diagnosis. That's We want to make sure we're treating people based on symptoms, not on what a tick might have. I've heard, uh, I've heard other advice that maybe when I'm out hiking in the woods, maybe I should walk down the center of the trail where it's best beaten back and not hang in the tall grasses. Is there any any truth to that? Does that help me out? It does. Uh, When ticks are questing, as we call it, when they're looking for a blood meal, they will generally crawl up onto foliage or other things around there. So they can be hanging out on the sides of trails where a deer or some other animal might have dropped them. Um, And so they're they're waiting for meals generally on top of those that foliage and those those pieces of blades of grass. The black-legged tick, this is the tick that, that generally causes Lyme disease. Uh, he is, his populations have grown in incredible numbers in the state of Michigan in the last four or five years, right? I think we're generally seeing an increase of populations overall. Um, I can't say specifically for the exodus scapularis, but we're definitely seeing it moving, and we're definitely seeing it in more places, and I think that's a trend that will continue. And again, linking that back to, to climate change, to warmer winters, and it's easier for them to overwinter. The most important thing that you would have our listeners to the A Matter of Public Health podcast take away from, from our conversation would be what? The outdoors is an amazing is an amazing thing. We should be enjoying it. There's a lot of health benefits. We should make sure we're going outside. But there is definitely a safer way to do it. And if you could avoid getting one of these pathogens just simply by checking yourself properly when you get home or by wearing a looser long sleeve shirt, then I think that everyone would err on the safe side if it was that simple. And it is. Is there anything I can do around my house? Uh, do I call an exterminator? How, how far do mosquitoes travel? It depends on the species, actually, but uh, a lot of mosquitoes don't travel that far. They're really looking for blood meals that are easier or generally within their range. Um, So they're not going to travel incredibly far. So do I worry, you know, we... We, we, every year we caution people to tip over a frisbee that might be laying in the, in the yard collecting water. Those small little pools of water. Clean the bird bath. Keep that clean. If my neighbor's not doing that, do I have to be concerned? Yeah, so not, not just in your house, but in the surrounding houses as well can absolutely breed mosquitoes that will come into your yard. And so making sure that we're all good stewards of our own, our own land, our own areas, our own houses, and making sure we're checking our gutters for pools of water that just kind of get caught up in there. We're cleaning those out. We're cleaning bird baths and checking tree holds to make sure we're not breeding mosquitoes is very important for not only us, but our community. You know, one of the things that uh, you and I were emailing back and forth before uh, we jumped in here to record this podcast, and one of the things you said is there are a lot of myths out there about mosquitoes and ticks. Tell us about some of those. 
So one of the big ones is something I mentioned earlier, which was the uh, the stuff about the tick and uh, <laughs> using c- uh, cigarettes or cigars or things Uncle like Bill's that. Cigar. Yeah. Uncle Bill's cigar, yeah. Um, another one is that if you're in a room full of people and a mosquito bites you, it can just fly around and give any kind of blood disease to anybody in the room, and that's just not the case. Uh, mosquitoes need to become infected themselves. So if they bite something or somebody, they need to go away and get infected before they can come back and give it to other people. They're not flying syringes. They're biological organisms that have their own systems as well. So in that life cycle of West Nile virus, they have to bite the bird. They have to harbor this thing for a period of time before they can go out and spread it. Absolutely. Mosquitoes and COVID? Yeah, mosquitoes and COVID, I don't believe uh, that's the thing. There's, uh, there's a lot of... Um, different pathogens that people associate, HIV, uh, things like that. Those things aren't necessarily something that mosquitoes will be able to pick up and transmit. All right, very good. Again, he is Paul Bellamy. He's the uh, Vector Surveillance Program Manager here at the Kent County Health Department. I'm Steve Kelso. Thank you for joining us for this uh, episode of A Matter of Public Health. Remember, you can get A Matter of Public Health. If you click that like and subscribe button on the bottom of Apple Podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts.